Oh, good morning. Great to uh, see some uh, new faces here this morning. Great to, uh, we love welcoming new people and good to see some familiar faces as well. Uh, yeah. Uh, as Tim said, my name is Dan and uh, we're going to look now at, uh, at John's Gospel. Uh, and um, yeah, let's just, just pray once more uh, as, we, as we go into this. Father, thank you for the precious gift of your word to us. We pray that Jesus would be made known to us now. And that you'd help us, Father, to respond in the right way. Amen. Well, I hope you're ready for this. Um, I've got a really exciting question for you this morning. Like, you're going to be sort of jumping out of your seats exciting. What was the Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year 2016? Anyone know what that was? Told you it was exciting. Brexit was one of the... Well, no, it wasn't actually... There was Brexiteers was one of the shortlists, but it didn't make it. Rachel, very good. Post-truth, yes. Post-truth. I told you it's exciting. And it doesn't matter whether you found it exciting or not, because the truth doesn't really matter, does it? Um, yeah, so post-truth. And uh, the Oxford English Dictionaries say this. After much discussion, debate, and research, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year 2016 is post-truth. An adjective defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. You could summarize it as feelings have replaced facts. Feelings more important than facts. And uh, some examples of post-truth. Uh, we're going to have a little video now uh, just to give you a teaser of post-truth. Uh, if that could play, please, hopefully. Yep. ISIS is honoring President Obama. He is the founder of ISIS. He's the founder of ISIS. Okay? He's the founder. He founded ISIS. And I would say the co-founder would be Crooked Hillary Clinton. Co-founder. Crooked Hillary Clinton. ISIS. Thanks. See, I would say that's a fairly good example, perhaps representative example of post-truth. The President of the United States there, leader of the free world, uh, saying that President Obama was the founder of ISIS. And he was, wasn't kind of cautious about his claim, was he? He was quite clear. There was no room for error there. Obama, he thought, was the founder of ISIS. And I think most people regard that not to be true. But maybe it won him the election. Does it matter? Does truth matter? Or uh, his uh, press secretary. This was the largest audience to ever witness an, augura- in, an inauguration, period. Uh, so he said to the media, and then you just have to look at the photos side by side and see that perhaps that's not quite the truth. Some would say uh, that uh, elements of the Brexit campaign, probably on both sides, uh, had elements of this post-truth in it. Some would say you know, the £350 million a week to the NHS for example. And uh, whatever you think, whatever side of that you're on, uh, it's kind of the basis, isn't it, of, of, of the former Prime Minister, Tony Blair, him coming out this week and uh, in trying to intervene. Whatever you agree with him or disagree with him, it's about claims that were made, uh, that uh, he's saying about claims that were made that maybe haven't quite come through. I don't want to get into the politics, but I just want to highlight that it appears to be the case in some parts of public life 
that truth seems to be up for grabs more than it used to. In one sense, perhaps this isn't so surprising, as we consider for for a long time, it's been argued in some circles that truth is relative. What is true for you might not be true for me. Truth doesn't really matter, does it? How many times have you heard the phrase, oh, it's, it's just a white lie? It's just, I'm only deceiving them a little bit. It's just a white lie. Or have you been asked to deceive someone at work? Perhaps uh, supposedly for the good of the company, the organization. Actually, post-truth isn't all that new. Hasn't it been around in generations of parents warning their children in the approach to Christmas not to misbehave? Or Father Christmas won't bring them any presents. Isn't that an appeal to the emotions, to feelings, rather than facts? Does truth matter? Is there ultimate truth? And what difference does it make anyway? This morning, we're continuing our series in John's Gospel, a book in the New Testament part of the Bible, written like a biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in the encounter we're looking at this morning, we'll see some of what Jesus has to say about truth. Jesus is still in the grounds of the temple, which John really helpfully set the scene of last week. And at the end of the passage we looked at last week, in response to Jesus' teaching, John writes in verse 30, even as he spoke... Many believed in him. And this morning we're picking up the unfolding events from verse 31 of John chapter 8. You can find it on page 1074 in the Bibles in front of you. John chapter 8, verse 31, page 1074. So many uh, have just believed in him. And uh, Jesus uh, continues, John continues. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said... If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me, because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, 
Why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God, here's what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. So, uh, first of all, we're going to look at the encouragement Jesus gives to remain in the truth. If you've read this far in John's Gospel, you'll have noticed that Jesus often has hostile encounters with religious leaders, with the Jewish religious leaders. It would be easy enough, wouldn't it, to assume that's what's going on here in in chapter 8. More debates with the religious leaders. Except it's not. Who is it that Jesus is having this conversation with? Not the ruling leaders, nor a delegation sent from him. But it says the Jews who'd believed in him. Oh. Oh, this conversation is with those who, it says, have believed in him. And it's a bit misleading, maybe, that the, the heading in the NIV that describes this group as Jesus' opponents. But what John says is that at the beginning of this conversation, they were those who believed in him. They weren't opponents at the beginning. So it's possible, in some sense, to believe and yet still not be a real disciple of Jesus. And we've encountered this before in John's Gospel at the end of chapter 2 and near the end of chapter 6. And when these kind of things come up, it ought to make us sit up and listen to what Jesus has to say here. Whether we claim to be following him one week, or or one year, or five decades. Perhaps if John had been writing today, he might have written, it was to those who responded at the CU events week, those who made a commitment to Alpha, those who have been attending church for years, those who believed. What is the mark, then, of a true disciple? A true disciple is evidenced by what they do with Jesus' word. Take a look again at verses 31 to 32. To the Jews who had believed in him, believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The word translated for hold could be translated abide, remain, Take a look later at chapter 15 of John where he returns to this important theme. What Jesus is saying is that true disciples are those who persevere, who continue to remain in Jesus' teaching. That's not a a static thing, by the way. My bike remains in my shed, generally. But that's just a static kind of remaining. The kind of remaining Jesus is talking about is an active, progressive remaining. If we hold to his teaching, we'll be growing, growing in our grasp of what he says, growing in our understanding of his words, growing in how to put them into practice in our lives, growing in obedience, growing in our experience of him, growing in our love for him and our appreciation of his word. If we do that, then... And only then, according to Jesus, we are really his disciples. Not only that, we'll enjoy eternal life. As Jesus says in verse 51, Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. As one commentator writes here, he's not suggesting that his disciples will never experience physical death. But they'll never have to confront death and its terror as that final separation from God. They'll never experience the curse of sin. Those who obey the words of Jesus. It's the one who obeys the word of Jesus who enjoys this freedom 
from the curse of sin. John picks up this theme again in his first letter. In in 1 John chapter 2, he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And Jesus taught plainly on this theme elsewhere. As recorded in Matthew 7 and Luke chapter 6. Luke 6, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Then he goes on to give encouragement to everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. But he warns of destruction for those who hear his words and do not put them into practice. And as we read, as we read, it turns out in verse 37 that the people who Jesus was speaking to here were not true disciples after all. Because, verse 37, they have no room for his word. It's a simple enough picture, isn't it? Is there room in my heart, room in my life for Jesus and his word? I think the thought is captured really nicely in the words of the hymn by Katie Wilkinson. May the mind of Christ my saviour live in me from day to day. By his love and power controlling all I do and say. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour. So that all may see I triumph only through his power. And this emphasis of continuing to hold to Jesus' teaching, remaining in the truth of the gospel, continues throughout the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. And Philippians 2 contains a similar instruction. At Colossians 1, speaks of the evidence that a believer is reconciled, is made right with God, if they continue in their faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. And uh, there's loads of kind of verses we could look at, but uh, a key one perhaps is Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. We've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. And uh, John himself would write in, uh, in his third letter of how it gives him great joy when some believers came and testified about the church he was writing to about their faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. And that's uh, what we must do. That's what we're encouraged to do this morning, to continue to walk in the truth, to continue to walk in Jesus' word. And this isn't just a, another message saying, read your Bible. Uh, the people Jesus was writing to were, were hearing words. They didn't even have Bibles in the way that we have it. It's not a message just saying, read your Bible. But, but that is obvious though, isn't it? How can we expect to remain in his word if we're not soaking it up like a sponge? How can I profess to be a, a true disciple of the Jesus who said these things that we've read this morning... Unless I take seriously the opportunity I have to read and put into practice what he says. And on the whole, that that ought to be a delight to me. After all, his words are full of the spirit and life. And if you struggle to read the Bible, then please don't just feel like a rubbish Christian and and go away full of more guilt and, and sense of failure. 
Talk to someone, someone you trust. Ask someone for help and encouragement. Maybe that's a, a Christian friend. Maybe it's a home group leader. Or just ask any of the church leadership and, and we'll seek to help you in love, not judgment. No one's going to rip you apart for saying, actually, I'd like to make more of an effort to hold on to Jesus' word, to hold to his teaching. We'll be thrilled to help people do that. No one's going to judge you. Just two weeks ago, someone approached me about an idea they'd had to watch videos of the Gospels because they found reading them difficult. You can get audio versions of the whole Bible. You can use apps to remind you if that's your problem. We're not short of resources in the Western church. It's not resources that we lack. Chapter 6 is similar again of John. And they're the so-called disciples to whom Jesus kind of says they have this kind of superficial faith. He diagnoses their problem as not believing his words that he had spoken to them. Words, Jesus said, which are full of the spirit and life. Many found his words hard and turned back and no longer followed him. The response of his true disciples, though, was to say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. The mark of a true disciple is quite simple, really. It's seen in how they respond to Jesus' words. Even in the parts of his teaching that are hard to follow or maybe cause offense, do they dismiss it, walk away from it, or do they cling to it? Drink the words in, treasure them, believe them, obey them. Earlier this week, uh, I asked uh, Iris and Tony, who, had the, who unfortunately for them happened to be at House of Prayer with me, um, and uh, I asked them for their top tips on holding on, holding firmly to Jesus' word throughout life. And uh, they very kindly gave me a couple of tips each. The first one was to rely on the grace of God. Get back up again. Even when we knew what we were doing, he sets us on our feet. Rely on the grace of God. The second tip was that we need the Spirit's light, the Spirit's light, sorry, to make the word real to us. We need the Spirit's light to make the word real to us. And Iris's second tip was about reading intentionally versus automatically. She kind of shared this really helpful example. I've got her permission to tell you this. She shared this really helpful example of when she was reading recently about the resurrection. And she read it and then just, well, what did I just read? And she asked herself, what did you just read? And so she had to read it again because she was just reading automatically. She's encouraging us to read intentionally. And uh, finally, Ephesians 1, pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation every time you read the word. They're great tips, aren't they? That's one of the reasons why I love House of Prayer, to kind of get this wisdom from brothers and sisters here. If we're going to make it in the end, we do need to believe the word of grace, the word of God's grace. Believe it even when it seems most unlikely. Perhaps that's when I've strayed further than I've ever strayed. Perhaps that's when I'm conscious of the bad choices I've made or whatever it is. If I'm to make it to the end, I need to believe this word of promised grace, and by believing, have life. Remain in the truth. Secondly, be liberated by the truth. We're to remain in the truth. By remaining in the truth, we show ourselves to be true disciples of Jesus. And Jesus says something else happens also. If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
The truth Jesus speaks of here is the truth that has been revealed in and by Jesus. The truth of the gospel. John has already introduced his book declaring that Jesus is full of truth. And uh, later in chapter 14, Jesus will say, I am the truth. Jesus is the truth in person. The truth from the Father. And he doesn't deal in post-truth. Jesus has nothing to do with alternative facts. The claims of Jesus are either true or they are lies. If they're not absolutely true, then we can and should dismiss everything he ever said and did. If they are true, then they're absolutely true and there is no alternative reality. He is the truth with nothing to hide, nothing to be found out and exposed. No leaks will come to light and show that his claims were exaggerated or corrupt. It hasn't happened in 2,000 years and it isn't likely to happen now. That's all very well. But we've seen we need to respond to this truth. We need to embrace Jesus' truth, hold it, be shaped by it, live and die by it. And the rest of the New Testament is packed with descriptions of people who are saved as people who accepted the truth, believed the truth, know the truth, not rejected the truth, denying the truth, or turning away from the truth. But Jesus' hearers object to being set free because they don't understand or accept that they are slaves. They're in bondage to sin. There is that in them, in their nature, that's in bondage to sin. They start talking about their descent from Abraham. Abraham uh, is kind of a a really important character in the history of God's people. Uh, You can read about him in Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And they start saying, well, Abraham is our father. We've descended from him, as all true Jews have. And uh, Jesus kind of goes into this thing as a bit like a DNA test, maybe. Uh, You know, a DNA test, if you want to know whether you are actually someone's descendant, uh, then you could have a DNA test. And if you both share the same DNA... Uh, That could confirm who your biological mother or or father are. In a similar way, how how you respond to the one who God the Father sent, his son, how you respond to him, how you respond to Jesus, confirms your cosmic parenthood, as it were. If you respond in one way, that shows God has in fact become your father, and you are his true child. However, if you respond in the other way, that shows that God is not in fact your father, And you belong to a different cosmic family. And there's loads in this conversation about this kind of backwards and forwards. About who their true father is. Who their true parenthood is. They informed Jesus that they were descendants of Abraham. That's pretty obvious really. But yet Jesus brings that into question. Not physically speaking. Physically speaking, they've descended from Abraham. Jesus affirmed that. But they were not acting like children of Abraham. When the Lord visited Abraham over 2,000 years ago, when he visited Abraham, Abraham was falling over himself to welcome him, give hospitality, and more importantly, believe the word that was spoken to him, even though it seemed beyond belief. These so-called children of Abraham, on the other hand, failed to welcome Jesus with the honor he's due, and they failed to believe his word. In that sense, they're no children of Abraham. And the second parent they claim is God himself as their father. And much like their difference to Abraham, their evidence of not being Abraham's children, even more so does their response to Jesus evidence that they are not the father's children either. 
God the Father sent Jesus the Son, as we saw last week. And do listen to last week's message if you weren't here. Jesus does what the Father is doing. And the words Jesus speaks are from the Father. It's impossible for a child of God to reject the one whom God sent. Now their father was someone entirely different. Their father wanted to kill Jesus. They belong not to God, but to the devil. But Jesus says he'll set us free from our sin. He sets us free from our sin. He also has the power to set us free from the devil. We don't need to be freaked out by this kind of teaching. Jesus the Son sets us free if we hold to his truth. And uh, I found this kind of helpful uh, quote on what this freedom is like. Uh, True freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it's now genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us. Jesus so changes our heart that actually it's not like we're constrained to obey and it's a, a, a binding to us. We actually delight in it. We want to do it because in that true freedom uh, we now are pleased by doing what Jesus says. He'll set us free. Finally, uh, this encouragement to worship the Lord of truth. And let's pick up the encounter again in verse 48 of John 8. John chapter 8, verse 48, uh, where the attention has now very much turned on to who Jesus is. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you've seen Abraham. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this They picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. If Jesus wanted to claim only that he had existed before Abraham, he could have just said, before Abraham was, I was. But that's not what he said. Jesus' words are very clear here. Before Abraham was born, I am. And scholars who are experts in the original language in which this verse was written Explain there's no scope for confusion here over precisely what Jesus was claiming. He was applying the personal name by which God had made himself known to his people. Jesus was applying that name to himself. Uh, And as John explained last week, this name, I am, is the name God revealed to Moses when he asked uh, his name. I am, or I am who I am. Uh, we, we, uh, we, we say it as Yahweh. Again, listen to next week's message if you uh, missed that. 
In our English translations of the Old Testament, this name is, is translated as Lord with the small capital letters. A name carries the absolute nature of God. He is. He just is. He doesn't need anyone or anything else to exist in order to define him. He is who he is. And there's an eternal element to it. If you look up the verse in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God reveals his name to Moses, you'll see that in the text itself, the NIV translates the name, I am who I am. And in the footnote adds, or I will be what I will be. The name Yahweh is is paraphrased in Revelation chapter 1 as him who is and who was and who is to come. That's a kind of a commentary, an explanation of this name. Him who is and who was and who is to come. All time is embraced with God's presence. God is eternally existent without beginning or end. It's the same background to the cry in in, uh, Revelation chapter 4. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Who lives forever and ever. And a direct background to Jesus using this name in John 8 uh, is in Isaiah. Uh, And I won't go into it now. But do, if you want to, chapter 40 uh, to 55. I think the microphone's being turned off to tell me to stop. Um, But do read through Isaiah chapter 40 to 55 if you want to kind of reflect on this and dwell on it during the week. You'll see there these kind of uh, quotes with Jesus, uh, with the Lord saying, I am he. Uh, These are the words that Jesus took. To his own lips. And here Jesus is speaking of Abraham who died over 2,000 years ago previously. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus says that he is the eternal Lord who was and is and is to come. And actually John has already made this connection in his gospel as he recorded John the Baptist answering the religious leaders in chapter 1 verse 23. John the Baptist replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. And this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, A way is being, who is the way being prepared for there? The Lord, Yahweh, I am. Who's John the Baptist preparing the way for? Jesus. The implication then, even in chapter 1, is that Jesus is the Lord, Yahweh, come to his people as Isaiah had prophesied. And if you've read John, you'll be familiar with the opening sentences, which, uh, speaking of the Word, who refers to Jesus, describe the Word as God. The one who's come from the Father, the only Son come from the Father. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, The one who is himself God. All these verses in chapter 1 of John. And back in chapter 5, Jesus said that Moses wrote about me. He's the one who Moses wrote about. He's the Lord who Moses wrote around. Jesus is the Lord, Yahweh, who revealed himself to Abraham, who blessed him, who visited him and spoke with him and ate with him. Jesus is the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Isaac and Jacob, who we were looking at in our recent series in Genesis. Jesus is the Lord, Yahweh, who rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. He set them free then, and here he is, come to set them free again. Jesus is the Lord, Yahweh, who led his people into the promised land. He's the Lord, Yahweh, who spoke through the prophets. 
Who is it that 1 Corinthians says uh, the Israelites tested in the wilderness? Uh, You can have a look, uh, if you like, at chapter 10, verse 9 later, where Paul writes that it was Christ they tested. The Israelites tested Christ in the wilderness. Who is it that 1 Peter says spoke to the prophets, the Spirit of Christ? Who is it that some early manuscripts of Jude uh, say delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe? Jesus. Jesus is the one who delivered his people out of Egypt. God is three persons in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Son and the Spirit didn't just turn up in the New Testament. The Son and the Spirit are eternally God with the Father. Jesus is the Son sent from the Father. Jesus is the I Am, the Lord, Yahweh in person. And just in case you think I'm kind of going off my trolley, that this is what Jesus was plainly claiming is confirmed in the response of the Jews who he was speaking to. Jews who at the beginning of this conversation could be described as having believed in him. But now, verse 59, what did they do? At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. They understood well enough that Jesus was taking to himself that most holy name of God. And for that which they considered the most extreme blasphemy. They had only one response, stone him to death. You might remember another name given to Jesus, familiar in the Christmas stories and and carols uh, that we sing, Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. That's what we've got to believe. Not just that Jesus is powerful, Not just that Jesus can heal. Not just that Jesus came to die for sin. Jesus insists that we must believe that he is, I am, Yahweh, Lord, God, the eternal Son, from the eternal Father. And it's by believing that this is who Jesus is, and by trusting in his death in our place, that we can enter and enjoy life to the full, now and for eternity. John tells us in chapter 20 that he wrote his book that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. His name, who he is, is of fundamental importance. And once we've recognized who he is, the only response is to believe him, love him, worship him, and hold to his word. Towards the end of his book, John records this great moment when Thomas one of Jesus' disciples, becomes convinced that Jesus is who he said he is. And Thomas's response was to believe the risen Jesus and declare, my Lord and my God. He wasn't using that phrase casually or blasphemously. It wasn't the first century equivalent of OMG. He was saying, my Lord and my God. And Jesus accepts his worship. Thomas had got it right.